Hello, and welcome again to another conservative historian podcast. This one entitled, National Anthems, Only One Per Nation. The date, February 2023, and my name is Belisarius Abbas. According to the classic FM, the oldest national anthem in the world belongs to the Netherlands, and it is called the Wilhelmus. It was written between 1568 and 1572 during the Dutch Revolt against Habsburg, Spain. However, it did not become the official anthem of the Netherlands until 1932. Now, a national anthem is generally a patriotic musical composition that evokes and eulogizes the history and traditions of a nation and its people, and is recognized either by a nation's government as the official national song or by convention through use by the people. National anthems rose to prominence in Europe during the 19th century, but some originated much earlier than that. Most national anthems are either marches or hymns in style. They are usually in the country's national or most common language, although states with more than one national language may offer several versions of a single anthem. For example, the Swiss Psalm, the national anthem of Switzerland, has different lyrics for each of the country's four official languages, French, German, Italian, and Romanche. Meanwhile, the current national anthem, and I should say the current national anthem of South Africa, is unique in that five of the country's 11 official languages are used in the same anthem. The first stanza is divided between two languages, with each of the remaining three stanzas in a different language. Again, I think you probably get the gist. I am emphasizing one national anthem. Very few national anthems are written by a world-renowned composer. Exceptions include Germany, whose anthem, Das Lieder Deutschen, uses a melody written by Joseph Hayden, and Austria, whose national anthem, Landerberg, Landemstrom, is sometimes credited to Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. La Massies is the national anthem of France. The song was written in 1972 by Claude-Joseph Roger de Lille in Strasbourg after the declaration of war by France against Austria and was originally entitled War Song for the Army of the Rhine. The French National Convention adopted it as the Republic's anthem in 1795. The song acquired its nickname after being sung in Paris by volunteers from RCA marching to the capital. The song is the first example of that sort of European march anthemic style. The anthem's evocative melody and lyrics have led to its widespread use as a song of revolution and incorporation to many pieces of classical and popular music. You probably heard this, yet maybe did not know of it, given the popularity of, let's say, Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture, where the Marseillaise is intermingled with the composer's most famous music. And here it is. Thank you. 
It really is a cool piece of music. But then again, I'm probably partial to national anthems. I think that one's really interesting just because of, not only because of its age, but because of its rooting in history. Obviously, I'd like to listen to all of it, but it goes on for about two to three minutes. And there's just, you know, there's just little time. And right now, Russia is a horrible actor on the world stage, largely to its dictator strongman, Vladimir Putin. I think the invasion of Ukraine is heinous, and I applaud Vladimir Zelensky's efforts in freeing his nation from this subjugation. But the Russian national anthem? Well, it's that kind of stirring tribute that I I frankly think gets the blood moving. Here is this anthem, and think about its contrast a little bit to the French. Which, of course, brings us back to our own American national anthem. On September 14th, 1814, while detained aboard a British ship during the bombardment of Fort McHenry, Francis Scott Key witnessed at dawn the failure of the British attempt to take Baltimore during the War of 1812. Based on this experience, he wrote a poem that asks, Oh, say, does that star-spangled banner yet wave? Almost immediately, Key's poem was published and wedded to the tune of the Anticreontic Song. Long before the Civil War, the star-spangled banner became the musical and lyrical embodiment of the American flag. On July 26, 1889, the Secretary of the Navy designated the star-spangled banner as the official tune to be played at the raising of the flag. And during Woodrow Wilson's presidency, it was chosen by the White House to be played wherever a national anthem was appropriate. Probably the only thing of solid value from the entire Wilson administration. Well, that and child labor laws, but but I digress. Still, the song was criticized as violent in tone, challenging to sing, and by prohibitionists as a drinking song. But on its side, The Star-Spangled Banner had a strong supporter in John Philip Sousa, who, in 1931, opined that besides Key's soul-stirring words, it is the spirit of the music that inspires. That same year, on March 3rd, President Herbert C. Hoover signed the act establishing Key's poem and John Stafford Smith's music as the official anthem of the United States. As noted above, The Star Spangled Banner was, well, not universally beloved, so America the Beautiful crept up as a possible replacement. Writing in the American conservative, Michael Warren Davis makes his case. I think we're long overdue for an anthem overhaul. Frankly, there's not much to recommend the Star Spangled Banner. Mr. Key's poem is airtight, but John Stafford Smith's music setting is dreadful. For one thing, it's notoriously difficult to sing. The great virtue of America the Beautiful is that it's actually about a place, namely America. 
It celebrates the land that we're rightly proud to call home. With its purple mountains, fruited plains, and shining seas, it has a history. The pilgrims who beat a thoroughfare of freedom across the wilderness and those brave men proved in liberating strife who love their country more than self and mercy more than life. It's these things we share, our common home in history, which crowns our good in brotherhood. I will elucidate later why I like the Star-Spangled Banner, aside from the history, later in this podcast. Still, I will say that America the Beautiful is considered to be a replacement for the current national anthem. And, well, I do have to say, Warren Davis makes a decent case, I guess. But most importantly, I will say that America the Beautiful is considered to be a replacement for the current national anthem, not as a separate anthem for some Americans, but not for others. Actually, well, for about four years, an alternative American anthem operated at the same time as the Star-Spangled Banner and was intended for a separate group of Americans. The song was called Dixie and was celebrated by the slaveholders of the South. Dixie, also known as Dixie's Land, as in I Wish I Was in Dixie, and other titles, is a song about the southern United States first made in 1859. It is one of the most distinctly southern musical products of the entire 19th century. And Dixie originated in the minstrel shows of the 1850s and quickly became popular throughout the entire United States, but particularly in the South. During the American Civil War, it was adopted as, well, a de facto national anthem of the Confederacy, along with the Bonnie Boo flag and God Save the South. New versions appeared at this time that more explicitly tied the song to the events of the Civil War. And that brings us to the so-called mischaracterized lift every voice and sing, often referred to way too often as the Black National Anthem. Lift Every Voice and Sing was a hymn written as a poem by NAACP leader James Weldon Johnson in 1900. His brother, John Rosamond Johnson, composed the music for the lyrics, and a choir of 500 school children at the segregated Stanton School, where James Weldon Johnson was principal, first performed the song publicly in Jacksonville, Florida, to celebrate the President Abraham Lincoln's birthday. It does not seem totally odd for the NAACP, an organization founded in part by W.E.B. Du Bois and Ida B. Wells, to try to create an alternative anthem to the Star-Spangled Banner. But in 2018, NPR noted, Lift Every Voice and Sing is a song many African Americans know from school or church. But if you didn't hear it there, you may know it from one of a few landmark performances. Here's some examples where it's been performed. Motown's Kim Weston sang it nearly to 100,000 people at the historic Watsik concert in 1972. In 1990, singer Melba Moore released an all-star version that included, my opinion, the incomparable Anita Baker. Stevie Wonder and Dionne Warwick also performed it. Gladys Knight and B.B. Winans added their rendition in 2012. In this April, this is again 2018, Beyonce sang it at Coachella, highlighting black culture to a largely white audience. 
Okay, so it is a popular song. And frankly, I kind of like it. I actually think it's a good song. But NPR, being NPR, and the cultural left could not leave it at that. They never seem to be able to simply leave anything at that. In their opinion, Lift Every Voice and Sing cannot just be a wonderful song performed for and admired and even beloved by black people. No, it's got to be something more than that. So, as NPR says, so what is it about Lift Every Voice and Sing that speaks to a people so much that it's become known as the Black National Anthem? Shana Redman a professor at UCLA who studies music, race, and politics, and author of the book Anthem, Social Movements and the Sound of Solidarity in the African Diaspora, says it's a song about transcending difficulties, and these difficulties have never fully receded. Black communities across the globe continue to be vulnerable in very unique and unsettling ways, Redmond says, To sing this song is to revive that past, but also to recognize, as the lyrics of the song reveal, that there is a hopeful future that might come of it. I have zero issues with anything Redmond is saying here. Of course you would want to listen to a music that has that hopeful future that might come of it. That's a great phrase. Well, actually, aside from the issue of how many national anthems a nation needs, Redmond talks about a national anthem but then speaks of global communities. Either the song is transcendent or it is American. But aside from that, again, this this entire podcast is not about me disliking uh, Lift Every Voice and Sing. It's rather about what its purpose is. And what does that purpose say about us as America? And the concept of a black national anthem is gaining further purchase today. In writing about the 2023 Super Bowl a few weeks ago, Entertainment Weekly noted that Emmy winner Cheryl Lee Ralph kicked off Super Bowl 2023 singing the Black National Anthem, Lift Every Voice and Sing. In writing of the same event, Britain's Daily Mail at least put quotation marks around it, quote, the Black National Anthem, unquote, was performed before the Super Bowl for the third time in a row, causing outrage on social media. So why would I belabor this point? As a democracy of competing interests, we will always be at odds over this or that. At the founding, it was the power of the government versus that of the states. In the early 1800s, there were intense debates about spending on infrastructure, whether we needed a national bank, and the still-burning question of state versus federal power. The Civil War speaks for itself as far as the nation at odds, and in the late 1800s, everything from tariffs to immigration to Jim Crow to whether we had a gold or silver standard would tear us asunder. In the early 1900s, the progressives, the Great Depression, and late in the century, the Civil Rights Movement, and even the Vietnam War. Some issues, such as, well, sound versus soft money or states' rights, well, they're pretty much over and have been settled. Others, such as the legacy of Jim Crow and black equality, and the size and scope of the federal government, something the founders were very interested in, are very much with us today. There are issues and opinions 
and thoughts and power blocks that are always there to create division and divisiveness. Those who call for grand unification and why can't we all just get along are often those who only believe in unification under their terms with the other side yielding the power to them. Well, we do not have kings and we do not have emperors, but there must be moments, however fleeting, when we are an indivisible nation, where if not everyone, almost everyone, can agree on a standard set of cultural touchstones. A national anthem is one of those, a single Independence Day, and a single founding. That would be 1776. In fact, the latter two are under dire threat. We have the likes of the 1619 Project, and though Juneteenth might be important, like the Black National Anthem, is increasingly being set up as an alternative Independence Day to the 4th of July. Though, in a fit of revisionism to their revisionism, the editors of the 1619 Project took away the founding statement, but they did so with a wink and a nod. And for those who I'm thinking that an alternative Independence Day is just some sort of uh, hyperbole, writer Carolyn Downey makes this additional point. American actress and singer Vanessa Williams will perform the song Lift Every Voice and Sing, which has become known as the Black National Anthem at the annual A Capital Fourth televised celebration. Williams told the Associated Press she would be honoring the nation's Independence Day and Juneteenth, which recognizes the anniversary of the liberation of the last slaves in the United States at the show. No real distinction here. Except to say that if Lift Every Voice and Sing is the Black National Anthem, then is the Star-Spangled Banner the white one? What is the end game here? Do Latinos get their national anthem and make, I don't know, Cinco de Mayo equivalent to the 4th of July? And that will not even work, because Latinos are not a single block of groups. We would then need Cuban, Mexican, and many Central and Southern American immigration songs and days. We will need an Asian one. Well, two. China and India. Well, three. Pakistan is big, too. And, and of course, there's the Japanese. Do we need one for Jewish people? Maybe the Arab cultures. Roosevelt famously used a divide-and-conquer tradition to build his New Deal coalition. But it is hard to imagine somebody like Franklin Delano Roosevelt wanting to separate, well, everything? Let me place a word here that, rightly, has an odium in American history, and that word is segregation. Segregation is the action or state of setting someone or something apart from the others. What is a separate national anthem but a new version of that? Writing for the National Review, I think Rich Lowry captures this threat. A nation is to a large extent defined by its symbols and associations the holidays, rituals, heroes, and history, the mystic chords of memory that constitute its collective self-understanding. This is how a nation tells itself what it is and what its priorities should be. Lowry adds, in discussing the roots of identity, people inevitably define their identities in opposition to 
and other. The other in the case of our new national identity isn't foreign powers or alien practices, but American traditions themselves. Everything that doesn't fit into a new anti-racist narrative of the country must be denigrated and cast aside. New ceremonies, catchphrases, and heroes will replace the allegedly inadequate sinful ones of yore. And in one particular case, the NFL, which I had cited earlier, which not too long ago represented a consensus American patriotism, is now part of the vanguard of this hostile redefinition of what America is and should be. So what is exactly does the Star-Spangled Banner, our current national anthem, say in about, well, just 80 words? It evinces another of our totems, that is also under siege, our own flag. One cannot know our anthem without knowing our flag. O say can you see, by the dawn's early light, what so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last gleaming, whose broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous fight o'er the ramparts we watched were so gallantly streaming, and the rocket's red glare the bombs bursting in air, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. Oh, say does that star-spangled banner yet wave o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave. For me, the key passage is that our flag was still there. Our nation experiences torment, depressions, and war, and as, as we saw in the 1860s, war between ourselves. But the flag is still there. We are still resilient, free, and brave. Contrast that American national anthem to Russia's. Here are some passages. Obviously, unless you spoke perfect or fluent Russian, you probably didn't understand some of the words of the anthem that I played a little earlier. But here are the words translated into English. Be glorified, our free fatherland, the age-old union of fraternal peoples, ancestor given wisdom of the people. Be glorified, country, we are proud of you. From the southern seas to the polar edge, our forests and fields are spread out. You are the only one in the world. You are the only one, the native land, so kept by God. The Russian national anthem is about the nation and very much about the land. Keep in mind those uh, southern seas to the polar edge. One of those southern seas probably being, oh, I don't know, the Black Sea, which right now Russia is trying to spread their borders to and in fact has been somewhat successful in controlling the entire northern coast of the Black Sea. But what is not in evidence and is in our national anthem is the ideals of freedom, the free and the brave, and the ideal of that resilience, that the flag was still there. This does not expurgate the wrongs of our history. It does not mention them. What our national anthem does is exude the best quality of us as Americans, as one people. Not necessarily the, the land, the fruited plains, as this is referenced in America the Beautiful. Rather, again, the best qualities of us as Americans as one people. The elevation of other American national anthems 
is not a direct repudiation of this ethos, for it is almost impossible to repudiate this even for the descendants of slaves, as we say, the land of the free. That in and of itself provides that repudiation of slavery. In other words, that ideal of freedom, even though it was written before the end of slavery, was that beacon, that carrion call, that that direction of our nation as the land of the free. There are those who glory and prosper in division and divisiveness as if our national fabric frays or comes apart. They do not care as long as they get theirs. But Lincoln famously noted, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Multiple anthems and culture without common cultural touchstones will prove Lincoln right. Thank you again for listening to another Conservative Historian podcast. I really do hope you check out all of them. Each one of them is, 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 well, it's unique and tells a different part of world history. Not just American history, but we explore, well, pretty much everything we can find. Thank you for listening.